learning is both cognitive and emotional. In order to get to the cognitive, you got to open up the heart. And in order to challenge students, you got to have them know in their hearts that you believe in them. If a student knows that you as a teacher believe in him or her, they will absolutely work for that teacher. Thanks for coming uh, today, Nat. Uh, really good to sit here with you. We have the advantage of, of not only having professional compatibility in our interests, but also having a, a, a neighborhood where we both live. So um, I'm, I'm jealous uh, today in terms of the ease of this. It's so nice let's, to walk over here in my bathroom. There we go. Perfect. Um, so with that in mind, let me tell the listeners why Nat is here. Uh, as you might have noticed through listening to some of the episodes of the show, I, I've been pretty um, somewhat selfish in picking the guests. I've been lucky enough to talk them into doing it, but I have also made sure that it is things that I'm interested in. Uh, Nat is, is someone that I chose very carefully and happily uh, to talk about the profession uh, and the conversations that go into becoming a great teacher. Uh, I, when the girls were little, I, uh, they didn't really understand what I did for a living as a coach. And I finally was able to successfully equate it to being a teacher. So from then on in, I have always taken an interest and I still have the pleasure in the summertime of teaching at Hebrew Union College in the summer. So I try to keep my feet into it, but no one that I know has thought recently, uh, certainly over the history of his work and more deeply uh, about what it means to be a great teacher. And Nat has uh, recently uh, c uh, completed and is about to publish in May for those teachers and people looking for light summer reading, a book called Time to Teach and Time to Reach. And we'll talk about that today. So thank you for coming. So honored to be here, Drew. Thank, thank you. you very thank much you. for having me. So a few questions will get us uh, and us and the listeners a better understanding of how you think about teaching and what they can hopefully, perhaps, either dealing with teachers that their kids are handling or maybe in their own thinking about education, that you'll be able to help them. That's the goal of the podcast. But to understand that, let me first ask you, um, tell us a little bit about your general sort of biography of when you began to teach and where it has taken you to today. Sure. Um, I was an English teacher for 12 years in both Boston and Los Angeles. Before that, though, I think, I think my teaching career actually started as a camp counselor, an overnight camp counselor, um, when I was in high school and college. Because, you know, learning uh, teachable moments, as we would say in the education profession, happen all the time. And there's nothing like overnight camp where you watch in a very short period of time a young, in my case, a young boy, uh, grow um, it just in, in incredible ways uh, in, in, in that kind of environment. And I would say that even at 16, 17, 18 years old, I, I really tapped into the, um, the real joy of watching um, a kid develop and develop and, and in so doing also develop a sense of mastery, but also a sense of, of self-confidence that he did not have on that first day of camp. So I think I always look back at camp as being kind of where I 
I guess my spirit was ignited to teach. And then uh, right after I graduated college, I went into a teaching internship program um, in Boston and for a year and then ended up having my own classroom at 23 years old and then taught for 11 years and then moved into administration and learned the uh, dynamics of running a school um, for 12 years afterwards. Mm -hmm. So uh, right now I, I can say that I've spent half my career teaching in the classroom and half of my career um, uh, working with teachers and building as strong a school ethos as possible so that the students in my school become like those campers, um, you know, who, who are, and, and what I mean by that is that they are going to school in an environment that is encouraging of their own personal, intellectual, um, and ethical growth. Mm. And, and, and Nat, one of the things that, that Lisa and I like about him is his humility uh, in terms of what he's accomplished. And all you have to do is look at the bio. What he didn't tell you is the, the prestigious institutions that were, uh, you know, good enough to use his skills. Uh, and that's where this learning came from. So um, it raises a, it raises a, a question, two-part question, actually. First part is, as you think through those teaching experiences, uh, what were the what were the best parts of it? What are the what are the memories? You mentioned a little bit of it around watching uh, a child grow. How about a little more in terms of you know the the experiences you saw that gave you the most um, satisfaction? What's it? What's the word for that? When when you can see colors in your head when you think about a number, or when you listen hmm. to music, you see colors. There's a um, I have to look at it. It's, it. Maybe it's called aphasia. I think I, I have a, a degree of that when I'm in the classroom and I noticed this from my first year it's and, and, and what I mean is there is something incredibly powerful when I'm standing in front of a group of kids who it's almost like I take the ball and I, and I toss it out to them and I'm watching them take then the ball is an idea like a, a prompt or a concept. And I listen to the kids as they, kind of pass that ball around and and in so doing they are articulating their spin their angle on the concept that I toss out to them and to me what I see I can kind of see the zigzags um, that connect the kids forming a type of web in the classroom and that to me is that that image of, of a web is a web that's that's fused by ideas is um, something that that I, I always think about comes to mind first when I think about the classroom, a healthy, optimal classroom dynamic. Mm -hmm. And when you when you have that web achieved, it's not so much the teacher at the front of the classroom being the stage on the stage and the font of all knowledge. It is the the, the permission that comes within that classroom for kids to be able to take risks, be able to share ideas of their own, and. And, and, and gain the confidence that comes with their own peer feedback as well as the feedback of the teacher in front of them. Mm. That's powerful stuff. And I think that that is an example of where a school is different than, you know, a board meeting or a um, administration meeting or, you know, in the private sector, any sort of corporate meeting. It's not so much that you're watching the ideas banter back and forth and that that's the value. It is. But in the classroom, it really is. It's, it's output matters, and we're, we're certainly in an age of, of you know, uh, data and, 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 and incredible ability to um, assess a student's performance using technology. But it's not so, 
but, but the part of teaching that, that I noticed early on that really kind of, um, hooked me was not the, not the, not the summative data, the outcomes, but the process and the process of learning is so individualized and it is so nuanced. And when you are a teacher and these master teachers I interviewed for the book have all been able to articulate that what they do is they teach their kids how to learn and they themselves remain learners also. And if I were to think of any kind of special sauce or magic pill for what separates the expert teachers from um, the non-expert teachers, it's this ability on on the expert teachers to um, be able to utilize these qualitative relational elements of their own teaching to connect with their students and to build a classroom of safety, risk-taking, exploration together that, that benefits the student learning. Because the last thing I'll say and I'm, is that learning, research backs up now, particularly contemporary research, the fact that learning is both cognitive and emotional. In order to get to the cognitive, you got to open up the heart. And, and in order to challenge students, you got to have them know in their hearts that you believe in them. And if a student knows you as a teacher believe in him or her, they will, they will absolutely work for that teacher. Right. So as you're describing this uh, instilling of belief, yeah. in your mind's eye as you think about these expert teachers, translate the instilling of belief to a action, to a behavior that you would encourage uh, teachers who are, or people who are listening to this, what's something they must do that creates that feeling of belief? You know, it's interesting because it doesn't have to be that complicated. It's, it's, it's as easy as walking down the hallway, seeing a student that's been on your mind as a teacher, like, oh, you know, I noticed that this kid seems a little, a little out these, these past couple weeks, or this kid is just thriving in this arena. Um, and having a, a quick sidebar with them, like, hey, hey, Jimmy, got a second? I'll walk down the hallway. Where are you going? You're going to science class? I'll walk with you to science and just have a quick conversation. That, the, now, Jimmy might be a 15-year-old, insecure, you know, pimply little kid, uh, t- teenager, but, and, and he might kind of act like, I'm a little bit like, oh, you know, okay. But because you're just walking down the hallway and he's got to get to science class anyways, you have that opportunity as a teacher to walk with Jimmy side by side, communicate something to him, just a one little message, um, what I call a sidebar conversation in the book. And that can make a huge difference. Like whether he expresses it or not, and chances are he won't, but he absolutely knows that that messaging, the fact that my teacher saw me, picked me out of the crowd in the hallway, walked with me to class, shared with me this little nugget, whether it was positive or negative feedback, but in a way that he cared enough, um, that helps. And you can blow that up a little bit and just say, Hey, go to a game, go to a, uh, go to, go to, go to see the, you know, the school play, like do something that you watch some of your students. And then over the weekend, you know, Monday comes along and you bring up to that student in the hallway, perhaps, or in the classroom, Hey, I saw you on the soccer field. You know, you looked great out there on, on Friday in the game against Hingham that also goes a long, long way. Mm -hmm. So all of that feeds into my teacher believes in me or knows me because belief comes from being known. And if there's anything that a teenager particularly, (laughs) it's that weird um, tension between I want to be invisible because don't look at me, don't, you know, I'm growing and I'm I'm trying to figure myself out and, you know, but please do see me. Please, you know, help shape what I know in my heart I'm becoming. I'm becoming somebody vital and somebody I want, I'm becoming you, you know, adult teacher. Um, and I, and I know that I'm going down the road toward adulthood. 
this kind of feedback helps. Seeing me helps. Don't marginalize, not marginalizing me, but also giving me that room to grow. Right. Um, right. I was, I, was, I was just struck as you were telling the story of noticing the kid in the hall, the many, many halls of corporate life that I've walked through with clients where people ignore each other, where people uh, don't feel certainly recognized. And you even look and talk about people uh, defining this key leadership component of inspiration when you ask an employee to define what it means to be inspired, it, they say, it means to me that I matter, that I literally exist. So what you're pointing to in the classroom hallway is very similar. And for every listener here who's thinking about what does it take to truly connect, what you're showing is that it, it really can hopefully begin when we're children uh, and then learn it. Uh, and apply it later when we're adults. Well, let me ask you the contrasting question. Sure. The contrasting question would be, uh, you know, those are the, f- the fine moments that you point to. What makes teaching, though, uh, what are the hardest moments of teaching? Of the, of the hundreds of teachers that I talked with regarding this book, the, the central area of dissatisfaction was uh, time, having enough time to be able to connect and to uh, foster these relational um, <clears throat> connections with their students. And it's interesting because time is, is, has become commodified and, and the concept of time is something that uh, stretches and, and, and uh, condenses. Um, largely also the way, we, the way we view time, the way we shape our time. And so I'm not of the opinion that teaching has become overwhelmingly um, busy, like full with busy work, and, and that's supplanted the magic that happens in the classroom or in the hallway or in the lunchroom or whatnot. But I do absolutely accede to the fact that these, these thoughtful teachers are acknowledging the fact that while technology, for example, it's easy to take a look at technology um, and, and its influence on schools because we didn't have much, much technological influence on schools until about 20, 25 years ago when you know, the internet and email and, and the web and everything opened up. And as a tool, it's phenomenal. Um, you know, obviously everything, every bit of knowledge in the world is accessible at our fingertips. But the, we still don't quite know how to mindfully engage in technology. And schools, I think, are coming out of this period where they bought, they've spent so much, they've allocated so much on their hardware and on um, teacher training for how to employ the hardware in their classrooms. But that kind of learning on the teacher's part is challenging and it takes a lot of time. And in the, with the goal being, for example, closer communication between schools and parents or teachers and parents, uh, it's, it's added a, a new responsibility to the role of the teacher that wasn't there, you know, 20, 30 years ago for sure. When I started teaching, we didn't have email. We, we had a phone in the middle of the English department office, a telephone. And if it rang, somebody would be the one who you know had to pick up the phone and take the message for the teacher who was ostensibly in the classroom. Whereas today you have teachers, you know, being pinged on, you know, getting text messages from parents or at least emails from parents. And I, I ask, you know, a way we can help with this is I always ask the question, if I were a parent, is this something that I, is, is this issue on my mind, something that I would have, that I would make a phone call about? Um, or could it wait? Because it's so easy to be able to send out a text or so easy to write up an email about something that might not actually be that time sensitive. But a teacher who wants to do right and wants to, you know, doesn't want to afford 
an opportunity to connect with a parent will feel obliged to read it and, and, you know, and, and it will interrupt their, their teaching, their day. So there's a lot of that that has accumulated in the past. And makes the job harder. And makes the job more challenging, absolutely. Right. Well, speaking of more challenging, and it came to mind as you were talking about the extra training that teachers need to take, um, I was just thinking not only do they now supposedly, you know, have to learn how to use technology better, but now supposedly if if a certain way is had, they're going to have to learn to use guns. Um, And that's only half a joke. Uh, the, 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 the world changed a few weeks ago. Um, and it's sad almost to say that because it's been changing in many tragic ways within schools for, for quite a few years now since Columbine, um, at least within the popular uh, media. So my question then becomes, with Parkland uh, and that school taking such a front and center stage uh, between how the students the survivors have emerged uh, in such strong ways. Um, I want to ask you about the teachers at Parkland. I mean, I don't imagine you know any of them personally, but I'm sure you've studied and thought about the different demands put on them. Um, What role do you believe uh, the teacher can play in such a, a challenging, awful, tragic thing, other than the energy that it will take to learn how to handle a gun. Yeah, um, and you were only half joking with that right. initial comment about the teachers carrying guns, and that is uh, such a statement of where we are as a society, yes. and not a, not a hopeful one. Right. But teachers have hope. The good, the excellent teachers have hope. And what teachers do, and what these Parkland teachers have done since the shooting, has been to encourage these students to go out there and to organize these protests and to be the voices of their generation in a way that I think, honestly, only a teacher can do. Because what teachers have the privilege of is access to these kids on a daily basis. And they do know them, sometimes better than the parents, right? Because what, what you know, particularly high school students the way they are in the classroom is sometimes more honest than the way that they are at home because they, with an ex, with an excellent, with an expert teacher leading the classroom, they are hopefully bringing out the best in these students and they're seeing the best in these students through challenging them, through working with them, through inspiring them. They're seeing the best in these 15, 16, 17 year olds when society is kind of casting them off as, oh, they're just teenagers, they're just adolescents, their prefrontal cortex hasn't been fused yet, so don't take them seriously. No, 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 no. These teachers take their students seriously. And when you have something as tragic and, and, and shockingly uh, tragic as a school shooting, these teachers at Parkland have listened to their students and they are encouraging them to share their feelings, but more their articulation of how what just happened in their own school to their friends is symptomatic of an unhealthy culture. And the adults, we've always talked, you know, that's not new to us to be, to be reading from psychologists and from religious leaders and from politicians about how culture is not, is not perfectly healthy in the U S but to hear it from the kids themselves and to have that voice a, teacher's behind, a teacher is behind that, and I can only praise the teachers at Parkland for 
the role that they've played, first of all, through, through the trauma, which is traumatic to them, as well as the students and the parents, everybody in the community of the school, but also afterwards. Um, this is a time that in, in, through this tragedy, we are also celebrating not just their idealism, but their articulation of what they view the future to look like. The, I, I, I believe, Drew, that, that the world changed also in a, in a fundamentally positive st- degree with these student marches that have happened recently as a result of the Parkland shooting and a result of the teachers and the other adults in their lives saying, go for it. Got it. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, you know, hope coming from the ashes of all that is, uh, is something that, that we can all hold on to. That's, that's for sure. Um, but as you know, I'm a, a, a parent uh, of, of two kids uh, that have fortunately made it uh, into the college world and are, are, are forging on their own uh, for their relationships predominantly. I can't think of the name of one of my kids' teachers. But back uh, in, the, in the days of them being in elementary and middle and high school, uh, the relationship that uh, Lisa and I carved with the teachers of our kids was very important to us. Um, so I would turn to you, knowing these teachers as you do, Aside from having a, maybe taking a pause before you send the text, what other advice, knowing these expert teachers as you came to know through your book um, and your research, what other advice do you give to parents, especially when you were such a, a, a highly regarded administrator? How did you help parents be better parents to the teachers? I can approach that question actually looking at, um, I, j- I just had a conversation with uh, a senior administrator at a well-regarded school, high school here in LA uh, yesterday. And he was sharing with me how it's a such, he articulated beautifully what a tough role a teacher is in actually when it comes to parents who may have heard, like for example, we were talking about um, a student coming home to his parent, to his mom and saying, Hey mom, you know, this teacher is awful. You know, this teacher is, um, you know, it doesn't like me and, and I'm, I'm just not doing well in this teacher's class. The teacher might be thinking something very different. Like I'm challenging this, this, this kid, I'm, I'm working with him. I've given extra time on my comments, you know, on, on, you know, on his essays and I've given him verbal feedback and, you know, I, I think things are going quite well, but the parent hears from the student something different. That parent might communicate to another parent, you know, my, my child's not happy in this class. How do you feel about that? How's your child doing in this teacher's class? And it, and it becomes this kind of court of public opinion that grows, that, that has a potential to grow outside of the classroom and certainly outside of the teacher's domain. What comes to the school dean or the school principal comes from the parent outside of the classroom. So it's almost like, and this is a conversation I had yesterday with this, with this administrator, it's, it's sometimes very, very hard to see a teacher developing or, or just, just being spoken about truly unfairly and not being able to do much about it. The, the game of hearsay kind of takes over. So, 
all that to say, I think that what a parent can really do is try to remember that it doesn't help to, to feed into your child's dissatisfaction with the class, with the school, with teaching. I mean, keep in mind that learning is hard. Just the, the practice of learning. The best learning comes through challenge. The best learning comes through grinding through and then coming out the other side. And your long-term retention then is enhanced and you can, you, you, then you can build confidence from the challenge and, and learning and you just move forward. That's what learning, true learning feels like. Keeping that in mind, not to react in front of your child, not to share what your child said with anybody on the outside, really, if it is a repeated situation, if it is something where your child is giving examples that don't truly don't settle with you, to go to talk to the dean or to talk to the principal or to talk to the, the, the director, the division director or the advisor directly. No, so I, th- I think that really it's knowing on the front end who the go-to people are and working with that system. It's there in place for a reason. And remembering that a teacher's job is so uh, centered in her classroom and so not fully understood or construed by people outside of the classroom that you want to, as often as you can, honor that teacher's role. Mm -hmm. It's fundamental. Right. When one parent has a concern that you, I think, properly uh, invite them to go share with the administrator or the head of school, whatever it may be, what are the characteristics or the distinctions between those conversations that are created by the, typically by the initiative of the parent somehow aggrieved or concerned? What are the characteristics of those conversations that work better versus the ones that sound like whining and complaining and all the rest. I mean, what, 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 where's the difference? About seven years ago, uh, Professor Carol Dweck released a book called Mindset up in Stanford, uh, Professor, and she really, that was a 7.3 tremor, you know, seismic, had a seismic effect on, on educator, educators all over the U.S. and essentially the world on a very simple, on the surface, simple concept, which is in order to teach effectively, you want to instill in your students a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. Oh, I'm horrible at math. Oh, I'm horrible at Spanish. Oh, I'm not a good musician. No, no, no. I, I, what, let, let's, let's break that down. You're horrible at math. Well, what, what concepts in math really challenge you? And, and, and you know, let's dig into that because I believe that anybody can do, can do math and anybody can, can, can really soar and get an A in math or whatnot. But it's going from that fixed I can't mindset to a growth I could mindset. Okay, I, I think about that when I think about the the, uh, the way that I would in a dream world envision pa- every parent to have a growth mindset when they go into a meeting with their teacher, their son's teacher, or their daughter's dean or principal. Let's grow from this. Let's how can we take this negative situation and and grow from it together. And, and, and whether or not the student is present for the meeting, and that's completely to uh, liberty of the, of the administrator, always envision the student right there in the middle between, you know, you and the administrator or the teacher. Like, don't forget the student. Don't forget. And the teacher, a good teacher will not forget the student. It will be coming from the angle of, I want the student to be happy in my class. What teacher doesn't want their student to be happy in their class? Really? I mean, of course they want their students to be happy in their class. So how can we together build 
um, build on, build on this. Grow it. Grow it. Grow it. Well, it is ironic uh, if people now uh, press rewind back to an episode a couple weeks ago. You are now, uh, you've now brought Dr. Dweck uh, into the educational field as the CEO of Microsoft uh, brought Dr. Dweck uh, in the reference to the book, which I can point to my left that's on my bookshelf. Uh, as to the difference that the growth mindset has made at evolving the culture of Microsoft, uh, you now talk about it evolving, ironically, both in conversation, the use of it, uh, in terms of the difference it can make in an educational setting. So good for Dr. Dweck. I happen to be re-listening to it uh, as well. So pitch, pitch, pitch for, for, for Dr. Dweck's great writing. Yes. My last question uh, before we wrap up here. Uh, I've always loved the saying, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants to do good work. Um, and what that really means is it comes, we, we do our work based on the influence of those who we have learned from or been around or been subject to their mentoring. Who do you pick uh, that helped maybe indirectly create this book uh, and create your approach to um, to the to the part of the, you know, career that uh, has become obviously very important to you. Who do you look back as your singular influence? The shoulders you stand on. There's so many teachers that stand out to me. I would say, and I really do need to look back at a teacher because um, I've worked with many mentors and they all have delivered advice, wisdom, experience, that have helped inform who I am as an educator, but I have to go back to the more primordial years of, of being a student and what I observed in this one teacher, Michael Connolly, who is in my, uh, the introduction of my book, just was that teacher that I needed at, at the time. And it was, he was my junior year English teacher. And he, I wasn't a great writer and I was not a great reader, actually. I, I, I did not take to books um, the way that most people do when you think about people who loved English class. And I didn't have the organizational structure in writing that I really wished that I had had at the time, but I just couldn't quite grasp it. And um, so Mike Connolly, I come into his class and he gets us writing, but he starts us off with just one paragraph responses to prompts. And these prompts aren't really heavy prompts. They're not that sophisticated. They're not that complex. They're, they're basically like prompts that would really get us to engage in our writing. So, um, you know, write about a certain, you know, athlete or a certain actor or a certain experience you had in the summer, a failure you had that you, 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 you rose above, like kind of those open-ended open, you know, book of questions kind of questions. And, but, but shaping the thesis and the evidence and, and being able to use your evidence to back up your thesis and just kind of getting that rhythm, writing rhythm into our, our minds, all of us. And then I noticed after about a, a month or two, he was able, he then assigned us, you know, essays that were m much more complex and much more, you know, academic focused. Yet I realized that I, I was nailing the paragraph structure and from the work that we, that he had done earlier. But I also noticed, and this is more important, I think he learned a lot about me through those first few, uh, you know, paragraphs that, that we wrote in September and October, because what I realized that he was really getting at was I wanted to, uh, to get to know my students. And so he began to start using analogies with me about sailing, for example, that is something I grew up doing. And, and I, I remember writing about sailing and he would use 
kind of sailing analogies with me in my writing. And I noticed that he was able to then connect with me on a deeper, more personal level. And that is the essence of my book. I mean, if I think about time to teach, time to reach, you know, it's the idea of building trust and, and encouraging exploration and being an authentic leader in front of the classroom and, and uh, cultivating connections and, and finding hope and having time for reflection. All of those six elements are what these expert teachers all kind of came back to in these interviews. And those six elements make up the pillars of, of what relational teaching is in my book. Mike Connolly is a phenomenal example of that. And, um, and, and layered on that, I have to say, was his passion for literature, particularly American literature, was infectious. And any teacher who still maintains a passion um, of, of the subject matter that they're teaching is going to win over you know, the majority of their students. But more importantly than that, any teacher who still maintains their passion for teaching and learning and still has that you know, twinkle in their eyes when, it, when a student gets a concept, those are the teachers that students, 100% of the students will, will really thrive under. Got it. Wow, what a great answer. Well, speaking of uh, shoulders of giants, uh, I've had a chance to, to look through Time to Teach and Time to Reach, and you provide uh, some great foundations in this book, uh, which, as we said, is coming out uh, in, er, in May. Let's, let's give the publisher their little wiggle room one way or another. Uh, but again, Time to Teach, Time to Reach, uh, subtitled, Expert Teachers Give Voice to the Power of Relational Teaching. The author, my friend, uh, and a, a great teacher, Nat Damon, thank you for joining Tell Me What to Say today. And, um, and please, everybody, take a look at this book uh, and apply, as you've heard, what Nat has seen work in the classroom. I'll bet uh, great teachers are great leaders. And that will apply clearly to any context that you are looking to excel in. Thank you, Nat. Thank you so much, Drew. It's been a pleasure.